0: Good morning. It's such a privilege to be able to read God's word. And I guess for some of us, there are many things in the Bible that we have heard many times, stories. But let's just pause this morning and just listen to God's word again. Take in what he's saying to us. And uh, we are reading from Luke, chapter 22, verses 47 to 62, in the New International Version. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little time later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with, with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was talking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. As you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter
1: 22, verses 47 to 62, we come to one of those stories in the Bible that makes you cringe. There's a few of those. It's a story of failure, story of testing there was an interesting phenomenon that was uh, discovered recently and that is that people like to watch other people fail <laughs> have you heard of this uh, there's a whole there's a whole trend in, in videos and reels and short clips of just watching some of you are smiling because you that's you you're watching people fail. <laughs> And, and, uh, as I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, what, what is, what is so in, engaging about this? And, and I'm not exactly sure why it's engaging, but all, all I can, all I can think of is there must be something that's revealed. There must be something that's shown about a person when they fail or in in that moment when when they've hit the bottom. There must be something that comes out that we're just fascinated. It's like all the facades seem to go away and we just see what's there. Well, we are here in uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, This is the third part in our series through the entire Gospel of Luke. Uh, This portion is called the way of the king as Luke puts Jesus into the spotlight as we watch him on his way to Calvary. Uh, in this passage, we are going to be learning about the king's custody. The king's custody. That that sort of word can mean two, two things. It can mean to be in somebody's care. It could also mean to be arrested. And I'm hoping that we can see how these ideas might bridge together by the time we get to the end of this message. Last week, we were able to hear and see Jesus praying in the garden. And last week we learned that the way of our King is the way of submission. We talked about how it was in the garden on his knees that Jesus, while the disciples were fighting off sleep, Jesus was agonizing in prayer. And being strengthened by the angel, he continued and he prayed more fervently. And you recall the famous words of Jesus If it's possible, Father, may this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we saw how Jesus, at that moment, accepting the Father's will, paved the way to him being victorious. Well, today our big idea is that Jesus is going to reveal his glory to us through his captivity, not despite it. Now, this is, this is important because often we think the wonder of the gospel is simply that Jesus suffered for us. And that is amazing. That is in, that, that, that's really important. That Jesus suffered for us. We sing about it. We've sang a couple songs about it this morning. It'll come into clearer focus as Jesus gets nailed to the cross. So that's, that's a wonderful mystery that Jesus would suffer for us. But it's deeper than that. It's not just that he suffered, but how he suffers that we see the glory of Christ. The question that drives this narrative is who is with Jesus? Jesus, as he finishes praying in the garden, there's this sense that he's separated and alone. And as the narrative unfolds, I'm glad that you're heard. Whoever, if you're one of those people, we hear you. Can I just say that? If you're one of the people who like, you put a big loud muffler on your car, we hear you. We hear you, it's okay. We know you're there. All right. The question that's driving this this narrative is is who is, who's with Jesus? He's alone as he rises from prayer and suddenly he's met with a crowd. And later on that question is going to haunt Peter Were you with him? The gospel in this text is seen in this that Jesus was taken into custody so that we might be free under his. In that great reversal, Jesus accepted the bonds of his captors so that we who were captive might go free. It's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful irony, a beautiful mystery. That God would love us so much. The outline of our passage is really just two scenes. Luke is going to show the glory of the Lord, as we said, the glory of the Lord, the mystery of the gospel in how Jesus suffered. He's going to come into focus for us in this text. And there's really two scenes here. The first scene is Jesus betrayed in the garden. The second is Jesus denied in the courtyard. Jesus betrayed in the garden. Jesus denied in the courtyard. The outline for this message is this. The first scene you might summarize as all hands on Jesus. You're going to watch as people try to scramble and rally for and against Jesus. All hands on Jesus. The second scene might be well summarized as all eyes on Peter. With rare exception in this narrative, in this whole section of Jesus going to Calvary, Peter comes into focus here in the midst of these harrowing hours. So all hands on Jesus, all eyes on Peter, and finally, all hearts are laid bare as we try to draw some lessons from this. With that, uh, I invite you to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, will you bless the hearing and the reading of your word today? May we know the truth that has stood for centuries, this gospel story that has gone and spread throughout the world, mocked and scorned by some, but believed on and accepted and bearing fruit to eternal life among countless others. Father, may we be among those who receive this truth through the power and enabling of your spirit by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. First scene, all hands on Jesus. Jesus had prayed that this cup would pass from him and there's a sense that he gets his answer right away. Jesus has been telling his disciples, why are you sleeping? Verse 46, he asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation Jesus began that time in the garden and finished that time in the garden by exhorting his disciples to pray. Pray, pray, there's an hour of testing that's about to come on you. And suddenly it's here. Verse 47, while he was speaking, a crowd came up. Notice how Luke just doesn't give you all the players just right just yet. A crowd emerges and you can just sort of see this throng coming through the darkness on that evening carrying torches. And this, this throng comes up and approaches Jesus. The crowds who were used to be a barrier between Jesus and those who were trying to kill him, now the crowd forms a mob that is here to arrest him. We're told that the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus is met with betrayal. His prayer is answered. The crowd's here to arrest him. Everything that he said was going to happen is happening. Now, one of the keys to understanding this text is to not put yourself in Jesus' shoes and to not put your voice in Jesus' voice because the glory of the Lord is seen in not how he is like us here. It's seen in how he is different than us. We might be tempted to read this passage and here comes the friend who's, who's hung out with us for so long. And the moment we see our betrayer and we see this crowd here to arrest us, what do we do? I would be prone to go into defensive mode, which sometimes looks like attack mode. To be filled with indignation, to be filled with with. Chaotic emotion to be driven by self-preservation and angst, but you can't read that into Jesus here. If you do, you'll miss the glory of the Lord. In this scene, all hands are trying to lay hold of Jesus, but the glory of the Lord is seen in that Jesus is the one who's at the helm. They are here to physically manhandle him. His disciples are ready to draw swords to defend him. They do. But Jesus displays, as one commentator put it, a majestic composure throughout this whole scene. We were going to show a a video clip to portray this, but much to the, and I had to apologize to to our AV crew. I said, I don't think we can show it. Because the portrayal of Jesus in the garden as they're arresting him in this film is he's angry. He's agitated, he's distressed. But if you read how Luke records this, every single, every single thing Jesus says and does Reeks of cool and calm and composure and acceptance. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And even what he says to Judas here, it's designed to probe Judas. He's still reaching out to Judas. He says, Judas, is it with a kiss that you'll betray me? He's not saying, Judas, I can't believe you're here. Are you really gonna betray me? He knew that. That's not behind his question. What's behind his question is, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Is Jesus staring into the soul of Judas and saying, are you still keeping up this facade? Are you you still... Are you still operating in some pretense that you think that the darkness of your heart and your rejection of me is not somehow visible to me? And you're going to, you're going to actually commit the act of handing me over? You're actually going to commit this, this betrayal? You're going to do it with a sign of affection? It's as if the Lord is saying, Judas, wake up. Are you going to sell me out in church? Are you going to deny me with your brothers? Are you going to are, are you going to sing the song? Are you going to are you going to go through the motions of this of this devotion to me with When all along in your heart, you know, Judas, that you don't trust me. You don't accept me. And what we're left to see here is a profound arrogance in Judas. How arrogant do you have to be to have come to this decision, not just to sell Jesus out, but then to come and to act as if you're still devoted. Jesus says, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Now, the disciples, verse 49, when, this, when the followers of Jesus saw what was going to happen, uh, this, is, this cracks me up. I mean, it shouldn't, but it's pretty funny. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And Jesus isn't given a right of reply, <laughs> verse fifty. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. That's like my, you know, you ever have people say, "Hey, can I have that?" You know. you I remember when, when my kids were much much younger. You know, they'd send the delegate to say, "Can can can we have dessert? Can we have dessert?" And as as the delegate's asking the question, the other one's got the hand in the, in the right? The hand in the cookie jar? <laughs> they say to Jesus, shall we, shall we strike with our swords? Now, what are they thinking? They're thinking, he told us to bring swords. Ah, this is why he told us to bring swords. But notice here, their prayerlessness created a dullness to the moment, a dullness to what was actually going on, to the fact that Jesus... If he wanted to resist, he could have. John's gospel paints this so clearly. How many times are they ready to run Jesus out of town? How many times are they ready to seize him, to push him off a cliff? And he just walks right out. How many times did he escape? Is the one who walks on water and the one who wind and waves obey, does he need your saber? Does he need your AK 47? Does he need your pistol? The disciples are saying, Ah, oh, 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 I know the answer to this one. This is what the sword's for. They missed everything. And in their dullness, they begin to act. They got to say, I, I must do something here. I must do something. I, I can't just sit and watch this happen. And in their, in their impatience and in their hurry and in their agitation, they draw their swords and they begin to exact violence. A violence that Jesus doesn't call for. A violence that Jesus doesn't need. How many times are we tempted to think, Lord, surely this is why I took self-defense. <laughs> this is why, this is why I have been made who I am. Lord, I'm going to win the battle for you. Action without prayer is dangerous. If you're feeling rushed and hurried, agitated, that you need to take up the cause of the Lord, but you haven't been with the Lord, I ask you to slow down. Stop. Pray. Not saying your heart's not in the wrong place, is in the wrong place. Maybe your heart's in a great place. The disciples loved Jesus. They didn't want to see this happen to him, but they missed what was going on. Jesus answered, No more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. All these hands ready to do violence. All these hands ready to to assert their control over God, his son, his plan. All these hands ready to get involved. And what are the hands of Jesus doing? The hands of Jesus are healing. Reminds me of that wonderful phrase that Tolkien wrote in The Return of the King where he said, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Your king is a healer. Jesus isn't there to do violence. He's accepting of it. Then Judas said to the chief priest, sorry, then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, now we know who's in this crowd. He says to all these people, he asks them a question now. Just like he asked Judas, he asks them a question. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Now this isn't Jesus saying unfair. How dare you? This is so ridiculous that you came out with swords and I didn't have a chance. This isn't Jesus saying, I can't, I just can't believe you. No, it's a question. And what is his question? Am I leading a rebellion? I wonder how many of the people who were carrying swords and clubs that night thought about that question. Was he leading a rebellion? Jesus said, every day I was with you. Note the language, with you. Every day Jesus says, I was with you. I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour. When darkness reigns, Jesus unfolds, and Luke masterfully writes this, that, that what's really going on here is, this is there is dark power here. But notice, it's for an hour. <laughs> it's temporary. All hands are laid on Jesus, but Jesus is in utter control, calmly mastering the chaos with perfect love. Jesus is mastering all of this. Does that change how you view his arrest? If you think of Jesus going to the cross and you see a victim, I encourage you, you gotta broaden that perspective. Was he innocent? Absolutely he was innocent. And in that sense, was he a victim of injustice? Totally, absolutely right. But was he a helpless victim? No. He knew exactly what was going on and he submitted to the plan of God as he prayed in the garden. And then in verses 54... All eyes turn to Peter. As Jesus is led to an audience with Caiaphas, the high priest, Peter follows at a distance. Peter is here doing what disciples do. They follow Jesus, but he's pulled back a little bit. Verse 55, and when some there had kindled a fire. I don't don't actually like the NIV has put when some there. It just says when they had kindled a fire. This means the people who arrested Jesus are the same people who lit the fire. Okay, so when we envision this scene, I don't want you to to envision Jesus sort of walking up to a little fire pit that maybe somebody else started earlier. No, this is the rabble, this is the mob that came out to grab Jesus, to seize him, and to bring him in. They've brought him to Caiaphas, they've done their job, and they want to see how this is all going to play out. Who is Peter with? He's with the captors. He's with the crowd. They light this fire. And there in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together. And Luke wants us to know exactly. Peter sat down with them. He was among them. Verse 56, a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. Notice she's not talking to him. Again, this isn't Peter sort of minding his own business and somebody walks up and just sort of strolling by saying, hey, you know, were you, weren't you, uh, weren't you with these guys? No. This is, this is the group gathered around waiting to hear what's going to happen. Peter is in league with the people who've arrested Jesus. Now, he's not in league with them in the sense that he's, he's on their cause. But what's he doing? He's trying to blend in. And notice the fire that is warming Peter is the same fire that gives the light to reveal his duplicity. She looked closely at him. The man was, uh, this man was with him. He denied it. woman. I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him. Notice they're asking the same question, but in different ways. You're also one of them. Now someone's talking to him. You see, Peter, Peter could have let the first comment go. He could have just kept his mouth shut, but he just wanted to make sure everyone there didn't start to follow the, the servant girl's line of thinking. And so he, he heard her say, wasn't this guy, uh, Galilee? Nope, nope, not me. Now somebody comes up to him and says, weren't you one of them? And he says, no, I wasn't. Now an hour goes by. He's had time to think about this. He's had time to compose himself. Who knows what else they were talking about. Has anything changed in an hour? Notice what happens. Another asserted. Notice they come with strength. Certainly this fellow was with him for he is a Galilean. Again, not even addressed to Peter. The captors are talking amongst themselves. And Peter adamantly says, no. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. What's Peter doing here? He is trying to blend in. He's trying to blend in. His discipleship is showing Yes, he's following Jesus, but he's following at a distance. What an interesting picture. I wonder, is that true of you? Could you say, like Peter, look, I am following the Lord. I know exactly where he is. I know exactly who he is. And I'm watching all of this unfold. I'm tracking Jesus. Yeah, I've led a bit of distance. Like I've I've I have i have I've allowed life to kind of create some distance between me and Jesus. I mean, you know, COVID was pretty tough. You know. This is, this is a pretty hard time to be a follower of Jesus. Our society is becoming increasingly secular. It really is, is the wise thing on my part to, to really remain in the world and, and, and remain sort of apart, just to kind of blend in, you know, put my hoodie up, just sort of lay low for a while and, and I'm still following Jesus. But I've let a bit of distance come between us. And before he knows it, he's clearly lost sight of, again, what Jesus had been teaching him. Folks, if you're a fair dinkum follower of Jesus, you're not going to be able to hide it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Your discipleship will show. It will, it will stick out. It's, it's one of these things where, where it's better to be all in or all out it's not good to be all out at all but but better to know exactly where you are than to to be in this kind of middling lukewarm position this sort of tepid discipleship and He's picked out for it, but Peter, he's trying to remain incognito. He's a Christian undercover. He's a disciple, he's a disciple in deep cover, hanging out with the captives. Who knows what he's thinking? You know, I, I bet it would have been very difficult for Peter. He's probably asking himself, why didn't he fight for us? All this time, I followed Jesus. All this time, I watched him do all these things. And in the moment where we need him to come through, the moment when we don't need a meal, we don't need, we don't need safety from a storm, we need him to be king. We need him to be the Messiah and say, I'm not gonna take this. In that moment, where were you, Jesus? And the question racking his brain is probably, will he fight for me? I wonder if that's a question in your mind. Are you going to fight for me, Lord? Or are you going to leave me hanging, waving in the wind? Notice, as soon as he says this, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Do you see all the eyes? Each of those three questions, they they, they saw him. They saw him. They saw him. Luke wants you to note that. They saw him. Peter couldn't hide. They saw him. And the last one to see him is who? Jesus. Jesus. The rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. I want you to ask yourself what expression was in the Lord's eyes, do you think? How did he look at him? I said at the beginning of this message, it's gonna be really important that you don't put yourself in Jesus's place in this text. I'll tell you what I would be thinking if I was Jesus at that point. That would have been the greatest nonverbal I told you so in the history of I told you so's. Right? All that would have, If that was me, all, all the time of of Peter take, standing up, speaking in front of everybody else, not letting anybody talk, not, not letting anyone sort of... Get, it, get into his position of prominence, all of that that I had to put up with for these three years, all that misunderstanding, even having to correct the ear that he chopped off just hours ago, I would have looked at him and have been like, huh, are you, you going to pay attention now? Well, Thank heaven, I, Jesus is not me. And he's not you. What was in his look? In some way, it must have been knowing. Certainly, it was a knowing look. But there's a look that says, I know what you did. And there's a look that says, I know you. Peter remembers the word of the Lord. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. But Peter ends this night in a very different place than Judas. He must have seen love in the Lord's eyes. Jot down in your Bible, Luke chapter 7. There's a couple other places in this gospel where Jesus turns to look at somebody. One is the parents of the girl who's died. It says he turned to them and said, Don't cry. Later in that chapter, Luke chapter 7, Jesus is in the home of Simon, the the, the Pharisee, the wealthy Pharisee, and the woman is wiping Jesus' feet with her tears, and it says he turns to the woman, and he said to Simon, it's so easy for us to read in this glance the the greatest I told you so in the history of I told you so's, but I don't think that's there. It's my conviction that Peter saw in Jesus' eyes, yes, a knowing look, but a loving look. And so what's Jesus doing? Just like like in the garden a, a few verses earlier, while everyone's ready to brandish their swords and wreak havoc and destruction, Jesus lays out his hands. The only thing he does with his hands is heal somebody. And here Jesus begins to heal Peter with a look. Finally, lessons from the time of trial. All hearts are laid bare. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' sacrifice, it exposes our depravity. It reveals his glory and it forges our destiny. Look with me briefly. The heart of the betrayer was was false. And that's what Jesus was trying to probe. Judas was absolutely blinded by his own self-deception. Whether it was arrogance, pride, uh, even people who paint a sympathetic portrait of Judas to say, well, he was just trying to create an environment where Jesus might, you know, show his power. Even that has such profound arrogance. And I don't actually think that's right because John would tell us that Judas was stealing from the purse the whole time. His heart was captive to money and to greed. It couldn't be captivated by Jesus. And yet he went through the facade and the charade of appearing to be devoted to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. If, if there is falsehood in your devotion, repent of it. Because it will be exposed. Jesus said that there will be some people who arrive on the doorsteps of eternity still clinging to their falsehood. They will knock on the door and they'll say, we'd like to come in. They'll say these words to Jesus. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? Didn't we do that for you? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we heal people? Didn't we, didn't we fill in the blank? He says, I never knew you. Why? Because there, there's a falsehood there. The heart of the captors was fearful. We know that the Jews were so jealous of Jesus. They were so consumed with trying to retain their position and their power and their privilege in this life. And they saw Jesus as a threat to that. Can I tell you the same thing is true today. If you are trying to build your life on securing your power, your privilege, and your prestige, Jesus will be a threat to that. And these captors, in their fear, they leaned into their own control. And they ended up seizing Jesus. The crowd in this gospel is fickle. They're, they're, they're with Jesus one day and they're against him the next day. And if, if this is you or somebody you know, these people need to recognize that majority opinion is not determinative of truth. At the end of the day, you will not rise or fall based on the fact that you landed in the majority. Being in the majority has nothing to do with your destiny. Jesus was very plain. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path to life and few are there who find it. And and so, if you're part of the crowd and you're just sort of, you punt on the, the decision of who is Jesus and will I be with him, will I sell out to him, if you punt on that, then... You, you are abdicating the greatest responsibility you ever have as a creature of God, which is to come to him in worship and to recognize what he's done to save you. Notice here the heart of the flesh. This is Peter. The heart of the flesh is feeble. Come on in, kids. We're almost done. The heart of the flesh is feeble. Here is Peter. He's in the garden, or excuse me, in the courtyard courtyard. He's in the courtyard. Where is his conviction? Where is that strength? Where is the bravado? He can't even stay out of a conversation. And when pressed, he just doubles down and denies Jesus all the more. Brothers and sisters, if we rely on the power of the flesh, and by that I mean we lean into our own understanding, our own capacity, our own ability, our own our own devotion, our own righteousness or sense of righteousness, if we, if we try to walk the Christian walk in that, you will be feeble and you will be weak. One of the questions I wrote down as I was studying this passage was, how much power is there in the spirit of God? Because this same man, who's trying to blend in with the servants of the powers that be out there in the courtyard. Just a few pages later, in the early chapters of Acts, he's standing in front of the same people who killed Jesus, and he's pointing the finger right at them, and he isn't hesitating to speak the gospel truth. And do you know what they said? They reasoned among themselves, and they asked themselves, How can unschooled, ordinary men have such strength and conviction? And the only conclusion they came up with was what? They had been with Jesus. And we know that they had experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their life at Pentecost. Peter, who is feeble, will be ferocious. In the kingdom of God. But of all the hearts laid bare. The heart you need to see most of all in this text. Is the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus. Mirrors the heart of God. Which is a faithfulness to his character. To love the lost. Even leaving those questions. With the same people who were persecuting him. Not retaliating. Not. Not not coming back and and being aggressive, not, not even condemning as much as he could condemn. God is faithful. Have we been with Jesus? I encourage you if you're feeling more like Peter or Judas in this passage... And what I'm saying about the heart of God revealed in the heart of Jesus, if if that seems strange to you, can I just say you're probably following at too great of a distance and you need to make up, you need to draw closer. As the band comes up, I want to leave you with some questions. How close am I following? Where am I blending in? Where am I just trying to say, hey, pay no attention? (laughs) Can others tell that I've been with Jesus? And finally, remember this. (laughs) When when Jesus was bound, when he took their cords upon him, the love of God was unbound. (laughs) It broke free. The devil thought he won. Satan thought that they had killed and destroy the author of life. But instead, that's when the love of God shone forth. I encourage you, meditate on this text this week. Go home, read it over, watch Jesus in the garden, watch him under his arrest, watch him looking at Peter, and I want you to ask yourself, how will you respond to a God who is this loving and this good?